wondering if I could get you guys to return to your seats. I know, it never works on the first try. This is, honestly, I still don't know what to say in this time. It's always makes Matt awkward. He's like, are you sure that you're fine with this transition? I'm fine with this transition. I don't know what to say during this transition. Instead of just yelling, I can yell at people and just say, get your, you know. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. Like a, no. Ding, 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 yeah. Y'all would grab a Bible or make sure you got your bulletin insert. Oh, we got a bulletin insert today. I will say this, though. Having a Bible today is going gonna, is gonna to benefit you. Um, this morning's message is on three verses, but I will say that the three verses are referring to other aspects of it. So it will be beneficial to have a Bible, whether in your hand or on your phone, so that you can kind of refer to what I'm, I'm going to be touching on in various aspects of Scripture so make sure to have that. We are going to be preaching on three particular verses in 1 Timothy as we walk through this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his protege in the city of Ephesus, his protege being Timothy. And of course, we find our place in this letter at verses 18 and 20, 18, 19, and 20 of chapter 1. Let me read this to you this morning. Paul says to Timothy, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among them whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. In my freshman history class at Florida State University, uh, I was assigned and read Stud Turkel's book, Pulitzer Prize winning book at that, The Good War. The Good War is a book that recounts the stories of 121 individuals who experienced World War II. From people like German civilians who survived the firebombing of Dresden to soldiers on the front lines of the battles, wherever that battle took. In truth, the book is a very moving piece of history and one that I cannot recommend enough. But it is the title of that book that catches our attention. The Good War. World War II. The Good War. It is rare, it is true, to think about wars being good. There was a common phrase in the 60s that came around the time of the Vietnam, make peace not war. I would say that this statement still resonates in many of our minds and in our consciences to this day. In our minds and in our conscience, there is never a place for good war. The truth be told, though, not all wars are bad. And because of that, we must not cower from this concept of war or even shirk from the responsibility that a good war might place upon us. We must be willing to consider that there is such a thing as a good war and partake in it. Now you might be thinking I'm getting ready to discuss international policy and how it relates to the church, but in truth that's not my job nor is it my place. I'm referring to a different war. The good war I am referring to is the war that the Apostle Paul commends his protege Timothy to wage. You see this at the end of verse 18. He says, wage the good warfare. 
Warfare language is very common throughout Paul's letters to the church. In his second letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth, he says this, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. See, he's using this imagery of warfare. For those of you that were here for our study through the book of Ephesians, you also recall how he talks about the spiritual warfare that we engage in. When he says, We do not wrestle against the flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, it's not a stretch to say that Paul viewed the Christian life as being one that is waged in constant warfare. The thought of this war being good or bad never crossed his mind. To him, there is a good war. And the Christian Life is a good war, war worth fighting. So how do we make sense of the good war Paul is commending Timothy to wage? I want to say it this way. It's very simple. The words that he is talking to Timothy pertain to an intramural debate that exists in the church. Said differently, he is saying, Timothy, you need to wage the good war that takes place in the life of the church. There are wars worth fighting. And there are wars in the church worth fighting. And so this morning, I want to give clarity and more, more kind of yeah, clarity on how we are to wage this war in the life of the church by answering the three questions that's on your bulletin. What is the good war? Why do we wage it? And lastly, how do we wage it? Okay? So let's... Look at these questions that we too might be engaged in the good war of the church. So what is the good war? In verse 18, we see that Paul says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. This charge at the beginning of verse 18 is actually a reference back to the charge that he began the letter to Timothy with. In verses 3 through 11, we find this charge. And that's why I said it's important if you want to look at your Bible, you can jump back and look at these charges. But I'm going to summarize these charges in verse 3 through 11. And it's there in these verses that Paul commands Timothy to charge certain persons to not teach any different doctrine than the one that he has given. There were certain persons in the church that were teaching and devoting themselves to missed genealogies and improper teachings of the law of God. These things were leading to speculations and pride. Paul wanted them stopped, and he wanted Timothy to be the one to stop them. But shortly after commanding Timothy to stop these false teachers, he provides Timothy with the true theology, both as a motivation as well as a standard to use in the war that he's asking Timothy to wage. This true theology and this motivation is found in verses 12 through 17. Here, Paul uses his own life as a testament to the truth of God, namely that the grace of God has overflowed with the faith, verse 14, and love that are in Christ Jesus towards Him, a great sinner. Making the statement, this statement, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So what do we make of these logical flows that Timothy 
is making, leading to verse 18 where he says this charge. Well, it is this. Paul is telling Timothy that the good war of the church is one that defends the truth of God from false teachings and proclaims God's grace to the church and world through the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross. I'm going to say this again because this answers the question, what is the good war? The good war is one that defends the truth of God from false teaching and proclaims God's grace to the church and world through the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross. A few hours after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor in 1941, a joint session of Congress was called by President Roosevelt. At this joint session of Congress, Roosevelt spoke the words which will forever echo in our country's history. You know them. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a day that will forever live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. As the speech continued on, it became clear that the President was making his case that the Congress should vote in favor of declaring war on Japan. And shortly after his speech, Congress did just that in nearly unanimous fashion. Of the 471 members of Congress at that time, 470 individuals voted in favor of declaring war on Japan. There was only one dissenter. But what do we make of this near unanimous declaration of war? It's this. That when something of value or that which we are responsible for is attacked, war becomes a necessary action. In this sense, it's a good thing. We know a good war when that which we value or are responsible for is attacked. And as Christians, as Christians, we have the most valuable idea in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when that gospel is attacked, we must declare war. It should be unanimous amongst us that we should leap into fighting for the defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But do we know the gospel of Jesus Christ well enough to leap into that battle? Are we conversant enough on the doctrines and the reality of the Trinity, the deity of Jesus Christ, the importance of Jesus and His atonement for our sins by grace? the sufficiency of Christ's death on the cross, the power of faith by justification, the infallibility of Scriptures. We must be at least conversant on these issues if we are going to wage the good warfare Paul is commending us to take. Because if we're not conversant on these issues, then we're not doing the very thing Paul is commending us to do. And if anything, we might even become victims of the false teachings which were creating speculations and pride in the church. And these are the very things Paul was trying to get them away from. Like any good soldier, we must be prepared and we must be disciplined in our preparation. And I simply want to recommend to you a few ways that we can be disciplined and prepared to wage this war. First, read your Bible. If you don't know your Bible, you won't understand its content. I cannot recommend to you enough a good study Bible because in the Bible you encounter questions, encounter things, you will say, I don't know what this is. And a good study Bible will help answer some of those questions immediately. And you'll begin to continue to read that which is in front of you. 
Secondly, read good books on the basics of Christianity. Here's four off the top of my head as I was thinking that are just incredible introductory explanations of Christianity in its essence. Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Prodigal God by Tim Keller. Simply Christian by N.T. Wright. Good books that just introduce you to the basics of our faith. But also, listen to good podcasts. There are two podcasts that I have been blessed by, especially in, re- in regards to doctrine and how it relates to the church, and I want to re- recommend them to you. One is Cultish. This podcast looks at the different ways that branches of, of cults have broken off from the church, and they actually go into describing the different ways that it is. It's a good podcast. The second is This Cultural Moment by a man named Mark Sayers and John Mark Comer. It's a very good podcast to help you understand, especially in this day and age, in the way that our culture affects us and is uniquely working in our minds and how the Christian faith interacts with that. Two great podcasts for you guys to listen to. There are certainly more like this, but I simply mention a few of these things so that you might begin to create clarity in your mind on that which is basic to the Christian faith. Because necessary to the good warfare is having clarity. Clarity on what is true to the Christian faith. Because this is what the good warfare Paul commends us to fight for. Knowing that good warfare now entails at least some doctrinal accuracies and the proclamation of truth, we now turn to the motivating factor of fighting this war. Why are we to wage this war? This is our second question. Well, Paul tells us the answer to this in verse 19. When he, after he recites, waged a good warfare, holding faith and good conscience, he says this in verse 19. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. Did you hear that? When the true faith is rejected, people make a shipwreck of their faith. They who were once filled with the hope of Christ and His grace are now without that hope. This is the reality of those teachers in Ephesus. They were teaching something other than the true faith. Something other than Christ and Him crucified. They focused rather on the myths and the genealogies and the law of God. And Paul is adamant that this is a catastrophic reality for the teachers and for the church. And I want you to understand, and I don't want you to get in your mind, that these were teachers that were getting into some licentious and, 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 and you know, misbehaviors where you would just go, oh my goodness, how dare they? If anything, these were teachers who were ascetic, very self-righteous, very conservative, the most buttoned up, the most righteous people that you would come into contact with. These are the people that Paul says are making a shipwreck of their faith. Of course, we're reminded by Paul that the heart of the church's message is that Christ came into the world to save sinners. That we as a sinful people are made right through the righteous life of Christ, which was given as an atoning sacrifice for us on the cross. As Christians, we live in light of that reality. We don't become self-righteous and buttoned up people because this is the way we're supposed to do. We become more loving because He first loved us through His death and His sacrifice. And it is Paul saying we must not lose sight of this because the minute we lose sight of this, we make a shipwreck 
of our faith. Of course, the most gracious, great, one of the greatest benefits to this reality of the benefit of Christ being our Savior is that we inherit eternal life. And he makes mention of this in verse 16, right prior to saying this. Paul reminded Timothy that the, those who believe in Jesus Christ will receive eternal life. So why do we fight this good war? We fight this good war so that our beloved in the church might not lose Christ and the blessing of eternal life. This is the essence of a shipwrecked faith. A few years ago, a pastor named Craig Barnes published an article in the Leadership Journal titled, The Eye of the Storm. In this article, he tells the story of an unworthy conflict which took place in his church. He says this, Last spring, the hospitality committee put a little coffee stand in the narthex. The next day, the head usher of 25 years quit in protest, saying, This coffee was a sacrilege to the church sanctuary. All the ushers followed suit and quickly became upset. However, since a committee had put the coffee there, the elders then had to decide on the issue. So they set up a task force that meant for eight weeks to listen to the ushers and the hospitality committee. One Sunday, a bunch of ushers decided not to show up to usher because the head usher hadn't been brought back in. So then the elders were ticked off at the ushers. Meanwhile, in the middle of all of that, I'm not talking to anybody about Jesus. I'm not making hospital calls or shepherding people through grief. I'm trying to figure out whether we should serve coffee in the narthex. Church fights are inevitable. And they happen for the most ridiculous of reasons. But what this should remind us of, the motivation that Paul is giving us for why we make good war, is that our conflict should revolve around things that have eternal significance. Coffee in the narthex? Are you kidding me? Does a person who walks into a narthex go, Oh my word, this church is apostate. They have run from God. No. Warfare is going to happen in the church. But we must wage the warfare that revolves around eternal matters. I know that there are things that make your blood boil in this church. I know they do. But I, what, I'm, what I want you to realize and what I want you to think about is this. Does that which makes your blood boil when you walk into the doors of this church pertain to eternal matters? Or do they pertain to personal preferences? I'm not saying that your personal preference isn't something that's worth to be considered. In fact, I, 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 I do want to consider your preferences. But is it worth making such a big stink over your own personal preferences? I think Paul would say, absolutely not. The type of warfare over personal preferences is bad warfare. The warfare we wage is one that is on doctrinal accuracy that pertains to eternal matters. This is why we fight the good war, Paul says to us. If you have personal preferences and stylings, let's talk. But let us not fight this battle. Let us make sure that we are aligned on eternal matters. So we've looked at and answered what is the good warfare? Why is it that we fight this good warfare? Lastly, how do we wage it? 
How do we wage this good warfare? How do we practice it? Well, the answer comes in verse 20 when Paul says that Hymenaeus and Alexander, who have made a shipwreck of their faith, have been handed over to Satan that they may not learn to blaspheme. This sounds certainly like a strange and devious phrase, but in reality the phrase is commonly used by Paul to describe church discipline. In fact, he uses this same exact phrase in his other letter to the church in Corinth when it was definitely particular about church discipline. And no surprise here, the practice was a carryover from the Jewish synagogue on how to deal with sin. So this is not some strange phrase, certainly it sounds devious, but it is simply describing church discipline. And the reality of church discipline is that it can be a very scary thing. Most of us remember moments in our childhood when our parents disciplined us in anger or frustration. Some of us felt it physically. Some of us felt it emotionally. But regardless of how we experience discipline, discipline has created us in our mind this negative reality. But discipline isn't necessarily to be thought always in such a negative manner. Discipline is the very means by which Paul commands us to wage war as a church. It is not done in anger, nor is it done to punish the individuals for their actions. There is, rather, to be done gently with the aim of bringing restoration of the individuals who encounter it. Think about it. This idea of handing individuals over to Satan just simply means taking the protection that the church provides away from its saints against Satan. Paul spoke of the protection that the saints receive in the armor of God to this same church in Ephesus when he says, take up the whole armor of God. It's yours. But being handed over to Satan, you no longer have the protection that the church provides. Essentially, Paul is saying the individual is no longer protected and they can experience all the way that Satan attacks. But there is an end in mind. There is an end in mind in handing them over to Satan. And you can see that when he says that they may not learn to blaspheme. Discipline of the church always has an end in mind. And that end is restoration. What is it that Paul said in in 1 Timothy when he was talking about his own life and his own sin? What was the very first sin that he mentioned? Do you remember this sin? I was a blasphemer. What are these men being accused of doing? Blaspheming. He of all people knows what it means to be restored from his sinful ways. The end of church discipline is always the restoration of the individual experiencing grace and transformation. And this is the heart of church discipline. And so when we encounter a situation that calls for the good war being waged, we are to practice proper church discipline that has at its end the restoration of that individual in the grace of Jesus Christ. A few years ago, I had a friend of mine in ministry who lost his job due to an inappropriate relationship with a student in his youth group. And while the relationship never warranted any legal action by civil authorities, the relationship was such that the church had to act, had to intercede, and fire my friend. As you can imagine, this was a very difficult season for my friend. He lost his job. 
His marriage was in a very difficult place and he knew that he was in the wrong for this relationship. But he submitted himself. He submitted himself to the discipline of the church. He didn't make a big stink over being fired. He submitted himself, trusting the leaders of the church. And it was not an overnight transformation, mind you. But slowly but surely, this man began to find the hope in the gospel. He he experienced his sin. He experienced the grace of God in light of his sin. And he became a changed man. Because he submitted himself to the good war. That man now is a teacher in a Christian school and a ruling elder of that very church. Because he understands, like Paul understood, the transforming reality of God's grace in light of sin. But church discipline was the very means that this took place. Church discipline is the very means that we wage the good war. And do you know the biblical mandate for church discipline? Do you know the proper steps that we are to take when we need to act in this manner? When someone wrongs you in the church or when false doctrines are being taught or when you are slandered. Because if we don't know how to act according to church discipline, then we will not wage the good warfare in a proper manner. So how do we wage the good warfare? If you have a Bible, you can flip to Matthew 18. These are Jesus' own words. These are Jesus' teachings to the disciples on how they are to wage church discipline. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. I'm going to read it, but if you draw your eyes there, you can see it. First, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. Great. Church discipline has done its job. But of course, Jesus understands that it's not always that easy. And so He continues. But if he does not listen, he says in verse 16, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Here we are told to go to this person with another person or another person with them so that the matter may not be so subjectively received but more objectively received. I mean, you can imagine if you, if you go to someone with three people who are like, well, you're, you're kind of in the wrong it's a little easier to answer. And if that person's speaking rather than the person that's offended, it might not come with the emotional baggage that the person offended brings. And Jesus says, probably just like that, if it's, it does its job, great. The discipline is done. But Jesus knows that this doesn't always happen. And so in verse 17, Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. The authority of the church here matters. It is the very place the church is where Christ has given the keys to the kingdom of God on earth. And the church matters. And so Jesus is saying, if the person still refuses after these first two steps, the church must go in. And look at what He says at the end of verse 17. If He refuses to listen to even to the church, let Him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. This is... Jesus' own way of what Paul said, handing them over to Satan. We practice the good war when we follow this three, or I guess fourfold footsteps of church discipline as told to us by Jesus. We seek to wage the good warfare 
in this way. My commendation to you is to wage the good warfare in the very, by, the, by doing the very words of Jesus in Matthew 18. It had been a few years since I picked up Turkel's good war, but this week I did once again. And once again I was captured by the many stories that are featured in the book. And of course, I couldn't help but realize the subtle irony of the book's title, The Good War. For the stories featured throughout offered something other than that which is good. Incendiary bombs being dropped on cities. Stories about friends being separated by death. Brutal mistreatments of individuals. The animalistic behavior of soldiers in warfare. And countless upon countless horrifying stories. It teaches me that the act of war is rarely good. In fact, no, it is ugly and it is difficult and it is never pretty. Yet still, there is one quote in this book, this book on World War II that I cannot shake. And it comes from a soldier who said this, To see fascism defeated, nothing better could have happened to a human being. To see Hitler taken off his pedestal, to see the concentration camps relieved, there couldn't have been anything better for humanity. Which I think led Turkel to write on the title of his book, The Good War. The lesson I'm learning is that while the reason for war isn't good, the ideas that war inevitably fight for can be. And this truth should be applied to the life of the church. As a church, we must wage the good war. A war that consists of the truthfulness of the gospel. A war that seeks to preserve and to protect the gospel of Jesus because the ideas that come from the gospel of Jesus have eternal significance in the lives of the people it serves. It's preached to. And we are to do it by practicing the church discipline that Jesus laid out for us in Matthew 18. It is a practice that is given to us to love each other. We also must remember that we must wage the good war as Timothy is reminded of Paul. My friends, let us wage this good war. Let me pray. Oh great God, would you give us the strength and the discipline to wage the good war that is commended to Timothy in Paul's letter to him. War is certainly terrifying at times because the reactions that it can bring cause us to fear and it causes us to move in on ourselves. But what I would ask is that your gospel would be such so beautiful to us, so worthy and valuable to us that when we sense that it is being attacked, that we wage the good war. And we wage this good war following the fourfold pattern that You have given to us in Your Word. May we do this. May we follow this for the sake of Your glory and the good of our neighbor and the good of our church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.